Y'all, we appreciate Samuel Merritt University so much for continuing to help keep this podcast going. They want us to tell you about their new Advance Your Practice Scholarship. They're offering a $10,000 scholarship to anyone who enrolls in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. If you're interested in getting more information about the programs, you can visit them at fnp.samuelmerritt.edu and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's fnp.samuelmerritt.edu. And as always, we'll put that link on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Still reeling from going a few rounds with the COVID bug. And after three years, finally got the COVID bug. But that's okay. I'm getting the last lap because now I have the vaccine and natural immunity. So they're COVID. So I want to welcome some of my favorite podcasters, Adrienne with Nursing Uncensored. And they've guest hosted so many times now, we're going to have to start putting their faces on a logo. Tom and Ben with We'll Continue to Monitor. <laughs> Welcome back to all of you guys. I have always wondered what I look like as a cartoon, so. <laughs> I am just glad to be here. I'm happy to be back. Thank you. <laughs> always good to have all of you. Today, we're going to have another cautionary tale for providers who prescribe opioids and other controlled substances. But don't think you know how this one's going to end because we've got quite a plot twist for you on this one. So you want to stick around for to get all the details on the story. And for the good nurse story, we're going to discuss the march of nurses that is going to happen in Washington, D.C. this coming May. We're going to give that give all the, the dirty details on that. If you haven't heard, it's May the 12th. You definitely want to stick around for that. We're going to hash out all the details. And also we're going to be naming the five doctors who were part of the 200 member of members of Congress who signed in approval of capping the pay of travel nurses. So just so you know, we will be <laughs> we'll be naming names. So but before we get started, <laughs> I do want to mention that we've landed on a city for our next Nurses PodCon, Austin, Texas. It's going to be amazing. If you don't know Nurses PodCon, it's a wonderful event that we did back in November. We're going to do it again in September. We're going to have even more podcasters involved. It's going to be amazing. And so we did wrap up the surveys that we were doing to try to figure out where you guys want us to go next. And as promised, I am giving away the pair of Stoggles that uh, were sent to me because Stoggles sponsored that event and they sent us all a pair of Stoggles. Stoggles, by the way, are safety goggles that are stylish. That's why they call them Stoggles. And I'm putting them on right now and you guys can't see that are listening. But I wanted a pair because they were so cool looking. I just really liked them, but I couldn't wear them because I wear prescription glasses. So I went ahead and ordered some and I just entered in my prescription and I have progressive glasses. So I was kind of wondering whether or not it would work. Stoggles sent them to me for free. So I want to thank them so much for doing that. They are beautiful. And I let me just tell you, I have I will have no problem wearing these gorgeous glasses all day when I'm working. And I just love the fact that I won't have to like switch back and forth, you know, between the safety goggles or wear the shield or, or whatever. I can just have these on all day long and just 
not even think about it. So also want to announce Amy Lukasik is the winner of the Stoggles that we gave away. So thank you everybody for voting on that location. And Amy will be reaching out to you soon to get all your information. So now you guys, I guess we might as well get started on this bad doctor story. Well, it is so, that time, yes. It is that time, isn't it? I, I deliberately asked you two on here because I wanted to get your opinion about this. You're going to be in the hot seat. So we, you know, we've definitely you know, covered these types of stories before on this podcast where providers are arrested and convicted of over-prescribing opioids and other controlled substances. But this one definitely takes a sharp turn. So stick around for that. It may take us a while to get there, but we will get there. I want to get into the details and then I'll let everybody jump in. So on June the 4th, 2020, and this happens very recent, COVID. Um, it, it's sort of uh, weird, but everything post like post COVID seems like it just happened a minute ago because <laughs> I just feel like that wasn't that just yesterday. But in, this was in the state of Connecticut, Dr. Anatoly Braylovsky. He was 41 and an LPN, Jennifer Busquet who was 36, were arrested, and they were each charged with possession and intent to distribute controlled substances and conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute controlled substances. So Brailovsky is also charged with healthcare fraud and with making false statements relating to healthcare matters. So we definitely want to emphasize this is very recent. They were charged, but that is definitely not evidence that they are guilty. Of course, in our uh, country, we are definitely innocent until proven guilty. So the allegations are just that. They're allegations, and they're both presumed innocent unless and until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And so most of the details from this case are coming straight from justice.gov. And uh, we're in no way asserting anything as fact on this podcast, but rather as information obtained from articles listed in the references in the description of the episode. <laughs> just keep myself Wow. Covered. I was saying a lot of lawyers just clapped while, <laughs> while you got done reading that. Yeah. Yeah. So just keeping it covered. So according to the article on justice.gov, Braylovsky is an, inter, or an internal medicine physician who has operated a family medicine practice. The DEA and the local police department had been receiving complaints about Brailovsky's prescribing practices since around 2014. So by early 2016, investigators from both departments warned him that they were concerned about his prescribing practices and informed him that some of his patients had a criminal history. Now, Adrienne... <laughs> I, I'm, this kills me. Wouldn't a reasonable person have thought this story would have ended right here? I mean, let's just move on to the Goodner story, right? Nothing to see here. Let's just move on. Right, right. But there's a twist. There's always a twist. <laughs> why? I can't. I don't understand. I. Why? If the if you have law enforcement, federal law Tom. Yeah. Former law enforcement. What in the world was he thinking? Well, that's what I was going to say. Is I don't know if you've seen it on YouTube. There's a whole thing called World's Dumbest Criminals. <laughs> so, and and assuming this guy's intelligent, I mean, he is internal med, but when the cops, like he's internal med, he must be, you know, a smart guy. He's a doctor. Okay, I thought you were like throwing shade or something. No, I mean, like he's internal med. He's a physician. He's clearly intelligent. Oh my God. But when the people that you are breaking the law allegedly are watching you, they tell you, hey, by the way, I'm watching you. And you know those bad things you're doing? You're giving them to people that we know are bad people. You should probably stop what you're doing 
and then you continue. Honestly, I don't know other than maybe, and this happens, you know, hubris. Some of these criminals, you know, I know you've talked about before is they think they're beyond it. They think I can't get caught. It's either that or he was part of a larger organization that had more control over him. But that I don't know if that's the case. Like those facts haven't come out. But at this point in time, it just looks like a real bad decision making process. And sometimes it's just living in a consequence-free environment up to that point. Like, you've been getting away with it. Like, people sometimes do think, like, well, yeah, they're watching, but I do it like this. So they're not on to this. It it kind of is that hubris of, like, well, they may have said they're watching me, but I'm doing it a different way now. It's like, well... Yeah, but you're not smarter than, like, the entire Yeah, I was going to say, one thing I would say um, about federal agents, especially DEA, that I'm aware of, is they're not really known for their sense of humor. Now, they're funny guys, okay? Like, they're super funny talking to them. Well, funny how? What do you mean funny? Oh, like, they're, like, just really good conversation. Like, they're really good at talking to people. That's part of their job. They're super good at that. But they're not known for, like, hey, practical joke. I'm going to say I'm investigating you. Ha ha. Like, no, if they say they're investigating you, that's bad. That's bad for you. And even, if, well, okay, I should retract that a little bit. In this case, people were complaining. The DEA did their job. They came in. They said, hey, we're going to take a look at what's going on. We've got these complaints. That's not bad. Like, that's their job. That's, you know, right. That's, you know, really neither here nor there. But in this case, they said, hey, we we've seen some of the stuff you're doing and we think it's kind of bad. You should probably stop doing it. Maybe he thought, oh, they told me to stop and I told him I was going to. So maybe they probably believed me. So if I keep doing it, they'll have no idea. Funny thing about those guys, (laughs) they tend to check on that stuff. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes not quick. But eventually, they're going to check. Eventually, they get around to it. (laughs) Well, the story, in fact, doesn't stop there, of course, or it wouldn't wouldn't have made the bad nurse story on Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. So as the authorities (laughs) continued to investigate once again, according to the article on justice.gov, they found that he continued to prescribe high quantities of opioid-based pills, as well as alprazolam and Adderall, to a number of his patients. Investigators also received information that some of his patients, including Nurse Busquette, received medically unnecessary prescriptions for these drugs and were then selling the pills for profit. Shocking. Also that he was selling prescriptions for large amounts of cash and that some patients who had their prescriptions filled were giving them right back to him. Somewhere around October 2019, years later after all the warnings happened, the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General got involved and I've ew, we've done stories like this before where like for like Medicare fraud and like other types of things where the OIG gets involved. You guys, I've said this before. You <laughs> stay away from all things federal. It just gives me the goosebumps. I don't even like saying it. But they got involved in the investigation and when it was discovered that Busquette and other patients of, of Brailovsky were using their Medicaid and Medicare insurance to pay for medically unnecessary prescriptions. Mm-mm-mm. Tom, we've had this discussion before, but I think it's a dead horse worth beating. You don't want to be investigated by the OIG for Medicaid or Medicare fraud. They don't mess around. They don't mess around. They have even less sense of humor than the aforementioned DEA agents. But realistically, I I, I don't think a lot of people think about it like this. The government is like the biggest gangster of all time. And when you owe them money, they're going to get their money. Like if you've ever seen Casino or Goodfellas, just it's that times literally hundreds of thousands. So 
yeah, you've already crossed the line. You were warned you were crossing the line. They told you we're going to keep checking on you if you cross the line. And then they got the paper pushers involved, and that's the death of a thousand cuts when OIG is involved. And as Thomas said on our show before, you never want the United States listed as the plaintiff on anything that you're doing because it's not going to end well for you. Yeah, because it will literally say your name. It'll say the United States of America versus you don't want to be on the other side of that equation. I'm just I promise you, even if nothing happens to you, you're going to go through the ringer to get to nothing. Okay, so. Yeah, you're going to be buried one way or the other. So you don't want to be on the other side of that. Well, for at least three years, Busquette, the LPN, has received from Brailovsky monthly prescriptions for 170 oxycodone, 30 milligram pills. Whoa. 75 Adderall, 20 milligram pills, and 30 Alprazolam, 2 milligram pills monthly. That's a lot. I know. It's so much. So it's also alleged that during the investigation, law enforcement arranged to have a confidential informant who was both a patient of Brailovsky and an associate of Busquette to pay Brailovsky cash in exchange to receiving a prescription for oxycodone. So on four different occasions over a three-month period, the source visited Brailovsky's office, gave him $1,600 in cash, and received a prescription for 150 oxycodone 30-milligram pills. Now, supposedly, Brailovsky did not perform any physical examination and did not discuss the source's health, but he billed, of course, Medicaid for each office visit anyhow. And then that same source provided Brailovsky with $1,600 in cash for a prescription during an office visit on March 18, 2020, and delivered $1,600 to Brailovsky's car after a telehealth appointment on April 30th because, you know, COVID, (laughs) they had to do it FaceTime. (laughs) You got to be careful. (laughs) So... (laughs) After each, oh gosh, after each prescription was filled, DEA agents took the oxycodone pills into evidence. Medicaid paid for each filled prescription. Good grief. Between approximately January 2016 and May 2020, Medicare and Medicaid have paid more than $1.6 million for scheduled two medications, including oxycodone prescribed by Brailovsky. During that time, Medicare and Medicaid have also paid Brailovsky's practice more than $590,000 for routine office visits. Now, I told you guys there's a dark turn in the story, and we're going to get to that. But I want to mention the fact that drug busts of pill mills are happening all over this country by all sorts of providers. So this is why I wanted you guys on here. I know. And, and I really wanted to talk to you. There are so many amazing, wonderful providers, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, internal medicine doctors, family medicine, that they're wonderful at what they do. And then you have these people and they're targeting them big time. Well, first of all, they should. And second of all, and I'm sure I want to hear Ben's opinion, but I'm sure it's going to be somewhat similar, is when I have a patient, now it changes how I have to treat them because jerks like this go out and screw it up. And so now... I have to go through extra hoops, and and that really sucks because when you have a patient that is legitimately in need of pain medication, not maybe somewhat all those quantities that you read off earlier, but again, I don't know the individual details, so you know that's you know a whole other subject. But now, it someone can be in legitimate pain. I can understand, sympathize, and want to treat that pain, and I am actually caged on some of my treatment options because of people like him. 
And I've worked in palliative and end-of-life care and with people that are having, like, end-of-life cancer pain. And so I just did the quick calculation. So 150 oxycodone over the course of, like, a 30-day period, that's, like, five a day. And that's 150 milligrams a day. So when I'm doing refills for my hospital right now because I'm on light duty, and so when we're filling out a prescription, we have to have a diagnosis code associated with the prescription why was that not flagging people that someone, you know, like there's, I would imagine that there would have to be diagnosis codes associated with this. As she already said that he wasn't even actually doing the visit, right? So if I put, you know, we've tried NSAIDs, we've tried physical therapy, and now you're still in pain and you're reporting seven out of 10 right knee pain with lack of range of motion. It doesn't matter if you actually said that. That's what your chart's going to say. So if somebody says, well, why did you give her this much medication? I'll be like, look right here. It says four times I've tried to treat her. And now true. I got nothing left. Okay. Now, true. Yeah. Yeah. It's all so, falsified. But at this point, opinion. though, and, and Ben, this is what I want to hear. Like, that's a ton of medication, though. I mean, for a long period of time like that, that's a lot. So it doesn't necessarily cage how I prescribe. I mean, I, I have chronic pain patients that I take care of. I have patients who are on medications like Alprazna and Adderall. What it does do, though, is, like Tom said, there's a lot more hoops that not only do I have to go through, but they have, the patient has to go through as well. So we now have controlled substance contracts. So anybody that I have on a controlled substance has a contract with me that says, here's what I expect from you. Here's what you expect from me. Here's everything that's, as far as that goes. They also know that they can be subject to uh, pill counts. They also know they can be subject to random drug screens anytime that I ask for one. So it's as Tom said, you know, for patients who are legitimate, it's made it harder for them to obtain the medication. It's made it harder for us, but that's the world that we live in and that's the way that we have to do things now. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that guys like this caused the situation where we're in. And so I, I it's it's just like most police officers I know, they actually hate bad cops worse than anybody else because not only are they criminals, but they make you look bad and make your job harder. In this case, I, I don't feel any different. So not only is this guy allegedly breaking the law, but regardless of whether he did or he didn't, now people are going to look into this and go, well, we need to make it harder on people to give out pills. The problem isn't the provider. The problem is criminals. So it, at least in this case, that's what I'd look at. Yes, and sometimes those two overlap. Oh, yeah. Which is why oh, yeah, we have this podcast. Yeah. I remind you every week. <laughs> so I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day, and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing 
Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD Stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis, so now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC-free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Even more recently in Atlanta, just to kind of give you a little example of this sort of thing going on, there was a gynecologist, two pharmacists, and 10 other people charged with operating illegal pill mills. So according to another article from justice.gov, and this is how I kind of came across this when I was doing the research, Dr. Anthony Mills was a licensed physician with a, a specialty listed with the Georgia Composite Medical Board of Gynecology. He did not, however maintain a gynecology pro uh, practice at any address listed with the medical board or the DEA. Instead, he allegedly operated a pill mill out of his Atlanta area home where he, again, allegedly sold prescriptions for cash payments. Now, you guys, that's quite an unfortunate last name to have for someone that's in this situation. One suggestion <laughs> I might make to any provider with the last name Mills is to not run a pill mill. I feel like you're just asking for trouble. <laughs> in fact, if you're a provider with that last name, maybe you should just look at a change you get. Quirky advertising. Mills Mill. There you go. Oh, See what I did there? Yeah. Yes. I, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Adrian's on the fence. She's like, no. She's like, Meh. It was too low. That fruit was too low to the ground, no. Tom. That was, that was, it was, low. It was low. That was low. <laughs> well, despite him specializing in gynecology, many of his patients, quote, patients to, to whom he was providing prescriptions, were male. 
which is probably going to be a good key indicator to places like the DEA. Huh. Yeah. So, Adrian, you know those red flags you were talking about earlier? I think this is going to be one of them, because if I give Ben oxycodone for his uterine cramps, <laughs> it's it. someone, maybe not the first time, legitimately, maybe the first time they're like, I don't know, yeah. this might be an accident. It's that year and a half later yeah, that's, that's really going to get it. Yeah. Like, as I'm scrolling through and I see, like, you know, the the diagnosis codes, like the, the premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and, you know, I see that he's, like, 78, and he has a history of testicular cancer. I'm like... Oh, hey, my uterus things. hurts, okay? I'm, I'm yeah. just... <laughs> I, I strained my uterus, so there you go. <laughs> I actually did come across a chart the other day that had like uh, the, I can't remember what that diagnosis code was, but there's like a diagnosis code for like broken penis. That I do think would require 150 milligrams of hydrocodone a day from yeah, what I, I can say. Imagine. Nope, that guy, he's getting that prescription. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's a diagnosis code I haven't seen before. Oh. In any case, I jest, but I do not wish that upon anyone. And no, I don't think that we should be illegally prescribing just because you got your. It's just, it's hard for me again to understand and once again physician must has to be a very intelligent as many has common sense but what could you possibly be thinking he apparently also well he was treating people he never even evaluated never even met some of these people some of the prescriptions were given to individuals whose identity had been stolen who were incarcerated at the time of the prescription or who were dead at the time of the prescription so I just think, you know, if what you were thinking had a poster child, it, this is <laughs> this man would be right there. I mean, this really is ballsy. This is like for a gynecologist. Absolutely. I mean, there's a paper trail. I could understand if you were doing this in a way that like maybe didn't leave a paper trail. But like I wouldn't be messing with. Yeah. But, but I, I mean, as you said earlier, with I don't know, especially controlled substances, there's always a paper trail. There's not a, there's, yeah, true. and that's true. part of, that's yeah. part of the, the enforcement mechanism is that they created a paper trail so that people like this, and, and the sad part is you're correct. This goes on for a while sometimes before it catches up to them, but hopefully eventually something gets snagged and somebody can start reeling it in. It's just sometimes a matter of time. But that's what it is. It's a case of, I think I can get away with it until yeah. I can, but if, but you'll notice in. What Tina said, there was also two pharmacists that were indicted in this as well, which means, yeah, there was assistance. They were feeling something they, they knew they shouldn't together. have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They were at least they were at least ignoring it, if not like blatantly allowing it, which is just as bad. Yeah, exactly. Well, to get back to Doctor Anatoly Brelovsky, apparently. According to an article from thedailybeast.com, he unknowingly went to someone who was connected with the FBI, quote, looking for help regarding witnesses associated with his case. So according to this unnamed informant, Brailovsky said the five days he spent in the New Haven jail before being released on bail in 2020 were the worst five days of his life, and he didn't want to go back. So according to this article, he thought the informant's brother was the president of the Hell's Angels. I feel like there's a lot of people trying to hire Hell's Angels members to do stuff like this, and it never turns out the way they think it's going to. I honestly can't tell you. Have you guys done a sh I feel like you probably have done a show with me where there was somebody trying to hire the Hell's, a Hell's Angels person to do a hit. Was there, Have you not? I don't know if we specifically said Hell's Angels, but yes, we have talked about 
hitman and how well actually i'm not even gonna say it. i'm gonna let miss tina say it because she loves saying it but she has this theory when you're trying to hire a hitman never hire a hitman he's a cop <laughs> jesus like i didn't know how else to set that up jason i don't know what kind of editing magic you can do to fix this problem but you're the only hope i would just sit here looking at her I'm like i I was like, I didn't know what else to do. I was like, I I could not have lofted that meatball any higher in the air. I was unaware of what to do after that. I just sat here. She still has the brain fog. She's just looking at me. I'm like, oh shit, did I say that in a foreign language? Oh, I'm sorry. I almost said it. I was waiting. I was like, wow. Okay, I'm sorry. I messed that up. I I need some more from the butler cup on Get yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. Or something, William, from this brain. I think oh, I do me. have COVID brain. I, 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 I literally had just everything went blank. <laughs> She's like, I'm sorry, I don't know words right they, now. They said that words are hard. That's got to be like the cover shot for the episode. Is Tina <laughs> yeah. just sitting? Well, yeah. Doe-eyed. You mean the thing I say every episode? I'm like, yeah, that thing. Go ahead, anytime you want to, you can. <laughs> Oh, we still well, love to be serious, though, for anybody that thinks that they're going to be hiring the president of the Hells Angels, that's not a thing. Okay? Hey, is it your brother, the president? Of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, you know, look, I am sure possibly the president of the Hells Angels has a brother and people know that guy. And you know, that's great. This is nothing against the Hells Angels. I f- honestly, in some way, kind of feel bad for them. They're like, hey, just because some jerk wants to hire a hitman, stop saying we're involved with it. Giving <laughs> us a bad reputation here. <laughs> yes. The, the Hells well, Angels, they're actually really nice people, but the only reason yeah. they have a bad reputation is because people keep saying stuff like this. The Hells Angels PR team is just... I know a guy who's the cousin of the chairman <laughs> of the Hells Angels yes, board. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, it was him. I, I just look. Let's just go another level, though. On top of if you want to hire a hitman, don't hire him. I went ahead and said it this time, so I just <laughs> went right to that. You're not going to meet the president. See, you do need to be on the logo. <laughs> yeah. need You're to be just. On the logo. I don't know about your local motorcycle clubs, but the Hell's Angels is a pretty vast organization. You're not going to meet the president of the Hell's Angels. Just throwing that out there. No. Well, he specifically told this guy that. There was a guy who was mic'd up that was going to testify against him. And he specifically said, this guy's got to go. And it was obvious to this informant that Brailovsky wanted this witness intimidated or killed, according to this article. And so it was arranged for them to meet in a Home Depot parking lot. In the meantime, the FBI was getting an undercover agent ready and to be available when Brailovsky came back. So here, you know, you guys, I got to stop here again. I'm so sorry, but I don't know why. I don't, I don't mean know to why laugh, poor Home Depot always gets drugged into these I'm right? I'm like, is this a sitcom? Like, what are we, really? Is this like the latest, like, Seth Rogen movie? Like, it, what are we It does we kind of sound to? very, like, all the, are the stereotypical things you see in a movie. <laughs> Let's go to Home Depot. Let's get a Hell's laugh, Angel. But I'm like, I feel like this has a two cocktail minimum. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. If you look in the back of the magazine, there's all these sea monkeys. It's amazing. You can get anything you want done here. I'm going to mute my mic because I'm really not trying to be a jerk. But when you said uh, well, Home Depot, yes, I was exactly. like, what? There's always a Home Depot or a Walmart. I, 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 for some reason, there's a shocking number of crimes referencing in some 
shape, form, or fashion, either Walmart or Home Depot. It's not, a it's not their fault. I don't blame them. I would just like to say that I think this should be a, a prime opportunity for Home Depot or Walmart to reach out to Tina at goodnewsbadnurse.com. <laughs> yeah. You want to sponsor the yeah. show? I mean, she mentions you frequently enough. So I do mention them a lot. <laughs> Uh, I don't know that it's. I don't know that they would like being mentioned uh, the way they're always mentioned here. I try to defend them, though. I try to defend them. It's not their fault. Somehow, I just got roped into defending the Hell's Angels, so I think you're sitting okay. <laughs> All right. So maybe the Hell's Angels will want to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna let Ben. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna let Ben handle that request. <laughs> I don't know. So, Ben, do you know the brother? <laughs> yeah, the president of the Hell's Angels. <laughs> you know, Ben knows everybody. He might. I can either so. confirm nor deny the allegations. <laughs> He's well, going to get he... a knock. <laughs> Sorry, I had to take that Tina tangent. It was just, it was, again, low-hanging fruit. It's, wait, this one is just full of low-hanging fruit. I can't help it. So he arrived at the Home Depot parking lot to get into the undercover agent's vehicle there was, of course, an FBI surveillance van probably parked right beside <laughs> Said FBI surveillance van on it at this point. A guy with an earpiece and sunglasses is just staring at them through the window. <laughs> he opened the door for me. Yeah. Speak up, Raylowski. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the undercover agent, of course, was what? Wearing a wire. And Brelovsky told the supposed hit, supposed hitman that he was nervous and that he didn't trust anyone. And he wanted to make sure that he was not an FBI agent. To which Just the ask FBI him. agent responded, absolutely not. I am definitely not an FBI agent. I can't believe you would even think that. I am hurt. Oh, <laughs> I mean, maybe wow. he didn't say that exactly, but... <laughs> <laughs> and you know now tom it is a it's a law right if, if you ask if they're a police officer they have to tell you the truth right you know what at this point sure yeah uh, by the way that's not true at all that's not there's zero truth to that what if he made him pinky promise <laughs> well see now you're talking ethical versus legal okay so those are two <laughs> different problems okay because a man that's willing to break a uh, pinky promise is just not a person to trust i don't care who he is but, no, constitutionally, it's been decided multiple times. As long as law enforcement is not causing you to do an illegal action, they can actually lie to you in the process of an investigation or, or something like that. So they do not have to be truthful with you while they're talking to you. So if they ask, if you ask a person if they're a cop, they do not have to tell you that they are a cop. Interesting. But... I don't think you have a lot of criminals listening to the show. So for all the good people listening, if you hear you someone that's a criminal no, and they ask you that, you tell yeah, them. No one that does anything bad listens to that's this story. That's what I'm saying. I think all your listeners are fantastic. So when someone asks you that question, you just tell them, yes, the cops, <laughs> absolutely. And that's how you keep the bad guys out of the loop right there. Yeah, there you go. Well, this is obviously still a pending case. I don't have any details, further details about the trial or any hearings that are planned. It's relatively recent. This was back just in August of 2021 when this, all this started happening. So I'm sure that kind of threw a big uh, wrench into everybody's plans. <laughs> I was like, thanks a lot. So we do want to point out, as of course we alluded to earlier, that there are a lot of providers who run legitimate clinics and treat chronic pain patients. So there is a doctor, Dr. Forrest Tennant, who specialized in pain management and drug addiction. He is um, a strong advocate for intractable pain patients and has argued that opioids can be safe and effective even when applied over long durations and helped push the Pain Patients Bill of Rights law through the California legislature. 
He has authored over 200 articles and books, including many to help intractable pain patients and is editor-in-chief of the journal Practical Pain Management and author of the book Handbook to Live Well with Adhesive Arachnoiditis book. (laughs) So anyway, completely delusional at this point, but (laughs) I know. So Dr. Tennant himself has been actually investigated and he was investigated a lot and he was not shy about vocalizing how he felt about it. He never really shied away from treating pain patients. And he was 77 years old when he retired. And he did retire after coming under investigation for overprescribing. That's not to say that he did that because of the investigation, but I mean, he was 77 and maybe he was just like, I'm exhausted at this point. I've done all I can do. He's done a lot of research on the topic. And so I did look up that adhesive arachnoiditis and it's like inflammation of the spinal cord that can be caused by different reasons. So anyway, it's apparently, if you look it up, Cleveland Clinic, lots of websites, legitimate websites talk about it. And it's apparently. Just because you're being investigated is not always necessarily a negative. I mean, he's a pain prescription provider. He's going to be dealing with these medications a lot in very large quantities. So the fact that someone's checking on him actually should be reassuring to people because that means people are going, hey, we, we need to make sure that you're on the up and up. And he said, and I'm glad he was vocal. Like, if he's not doing anything wrong, be vocal. I noticed he never said, I'm going to sue anybody. We didn't see any stuff like that. He just said, hey, if you're going to investigate me. So lots of respect to this Dr. Tennant because that is not an easy job. And I I have found, Ben, most of my patients are actually well-controlled and, you know, they're, they operate within the bounds that we give them. Like he said, we have those controlled medication contracts. Some states, like mine included, you have to meet with your provider every so many months in order to continue kit medication, stuff like that. I don't have any... I don't have any large problems with patients doing that. And I think that's the majority of patients. So that's what another, this Dr. Braylowski did though, is for everybody that, oh, I'm in pain. I just want to go see my doctor and not be in pain. He's the reason why it's hard for us to treat you without a bunch of hoops to jump through. Stuff like that. I shouldn't say Dr. Braylowski himself. Let me rephrase that. Physicians in the past who have been found guilty of crimes similar to what he's been accused of. Mm Mm-hmm. There you go. How about that? That sounds a lot better. (laughs) But I mean, to me, this is a symptom of the system working, believe it or not, versus not in this case. Yeah, we did a story. Oh, I don't remember who I did the story with, but about a nurse practitioner who was running a clinic. It wasn't a pain clinic. I don't think it was a pain clinic, but she was running a clinic and she did have her DEA, you know, her license to prescribe opioids and she had a few patients that she would treat for chronic pain she would counsel them she did all the things she had all the documentation showing that she did everything the way she was supposed to and they raided her office one day i mean like guns blazing all of them and one of like whoever in charge like walked in there and ripped her license off the wall it was just made this big display and she ended up everything turned out okay, but it was quite a story. And just like what's going on with Redonda Vaught in Nashville, even if you're found not guilty in something or, you know, you end up being exonerated, it is absolute H-E-double hockey sticks what they can put you through. You know what I mean? It can be. And that's what, what, you know, 
Ben was referencing earlier, you never want to see your name in the state of or the United States of America as the plaintiff. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. And again, that there's a difference, though, because we've talked about I don't want anybody to be confused. There's a difference between the DEA coming and say we're doing a routine investigation or due to complaints. You know, we're going to we're going to look through your files. We're going to do some stuff versus a raid. So I don't want them Mm -hmm. to think every time the DEA gets involved, they raid an office because that is not the correct impression for them to get. But and I don't know the details. Sometimes raids are overused, it sounds like. So it's hard for me to tell based off this one particular case. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad everything worked out well for her. Ben, are you still alive? (laughs) Now you're blurry and gray. gray. Yeah, blurry and gray now. Or maybe that's me. Maybe something else is in my bubble cup. Who knows? So (laughs) we actually had a seminar one time with a retired DEA agent. And that is one of the things that kind of changed the way that I practice. And one of the things he mentions is that I now have a file in my desk that has all my pain control contracts or my control substance contracts in it. And it's understood that it's the DEA or the state, everybody walks in, here's the file that you'll need to investigate whatever you need to do because we're trying to keep everything on the up and up. Sometimes, even as, as nurses and our documentation, we don't always know what is, there's so many things I could be documenting, so many things I could be doing, and then I only have so much time. So it's really nice to know what are they going to look for? You know, what's, what's Jayco looking for when they come? What is, what are the... Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services look, looking for when they come. What could they call out if I get called into court? What are they going to be looking at? And that and kind of be able to focus on that. So that's good. That's really smart, Ben, to kind of know from the source, look, this is what you need to do. If you have this all in line, you'll be fine. And, you know, I'd like to know that myself for, for my job. So a lot of these larger, and I can't say every agency, but a lot of these larger ones that are also responsible for regulatory purposes, such as the DEA, it's not usually a surprise. Like when they come up, they're going to say, these are the 10 things we're going to talk about. Like I need to know about this. So realistically, it's not very often that you have a, you know, in the movies, they like to make it seem like the DEA agent just walks in. He's like, ha, surprise, I'm here and flashes a badge and people do. No, in real life, usually you get like certified mail 90 days in advance. Like, hey, (laughs) you know, like, here's all the things. Please respond. Janet, my secretary will take your call. Like, it's not a very hard process in some in most cases. So it if you are getting surprise questions or a raid, then something tragically different or wrong has happened. Like it's a different level. So very often it's a manila envelope with, Hey, these are the things we're we're investigating. It's usually a very simple, very paper related issue. But if you haven't been keeping. Well, yeah. Okay. So that'd be a whole different problem. (laughs) Yeah. 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 If you've been running a pill mill, you're going to run into a problem when those guys show up. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Dr. Mills with the mill. I wonder if he was like on Mill Lane or maybe the town was named Mills. So. Mill Lane. <laughs> oh, there you go. Adrian is getting ready to puke in her mouth. I can see it. So <laughs> Adrian's like, I'm bailing. One I'm more, guys. This. One more. I laughed. I laughed so hard. I burned off so many endorphins <laughs> that now I'm over here needing a nap. Like, I'm just, I'm like, oh, what did I do to myself? No, I'm still here. I'm still fully engaged. But seriously, that laugh attack that I had, I don't know where that came from but I had the giggles and I had to self-soothe myself over here. 
You know, even with all the changes that's happened in nursing and healthcare lately, I can still say with certainty that becoming a nurse was one of the smartest decisions I ever made. And I do remember as a new grad feeling insecure and lacking confidence about what I was supposed to do next and how to start my career and all of those things. Well, right after I started working at a level one trauma center as a new grad, they started a nurse residency program and I missed it by one year. And I can remember watching those new grads and seeing all the fun experiences that they were having and the things that they were getting to learn and all of the support that they had. I remember just being so jealous and thinking, wow, I wish I had had that. This is what you guys need. And I've been telling you that all along. You need to get with a good nurse residency program. That's what HCA Healthcare's nurse residency program is. It's designed to help newly graduating nurses succeed. You'll build your confidence with hands-on clinical experience while developing your critical thinking skills. You'll be supported by a community of experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. So build a foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 180 84 hospitals across 19 states. And becoming a nurse resident with HCA Healthcare comes with other great benefits like tuition reimbursement, student loan assistance, clear career pathways to help you achieve your professional goals, and access to company-wide clinical education programs. They are accepting applications from nursing students who are preparing to graduate within the next six months or graduate nursing students who have six months or less of experience when they apply. So learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com residency. That's careers com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this bad doctor story. It was a great conversation, and I definitely think it was a cautionary tale uh, for a lot of people who, especially nurses who were thinking of going back for their advanced degrees and uh, who would possibly be prescribing uh, pain medication in the future. So I guess we can get started on this good nurse story. First of all, I wanted to address this thing that happened that sort of led up to the march, but we'll get into talking about this march that's going to happen. But basically, on January 24th in 2022, two members of the United States Congress sent a letter to Jeffrey Zients, the COVID-19 response team coordinator, asking him to investigate into whether travel nurses are being paid too much. And so this letter is not only from two members of the United States Congress, but also came with a list of 200 names of bipartisan congressmen and women who are in agreement with this. So on this list of 200 congressmen and women are six medical doctors. And we want to list them. (laughs) So I I promised at the beginning I was going to tell you who they are. And so Michael C. Burgess, MD, Republican from the state of Massachusetts, Neil P. Dunn, M.D., Republican from the state of Massachusetts, Ronnie L. Jackson, M.D., a Republican from the state of Texas, John Joyce, M.D., Republican from the state of uh, Pennsylvania, Marionette Miller-Meeks, M.D., a Republican from the state of Texas, and Gregory F. Murphy, M.D., a Republican from the state of North Carolina. So, you guys, so much for healthcare heroes. I always hated that term anyway, so let's just get it 
out of the way. Well, mm, not a lot of support from our side of the screen, at least for me, for these six people. I guess, has any of them made any statements as to why they support this bill? I mean, let's, I would say I, I haven't seen anything and not saying that they they do all the time, but usually there's some kind of supporting stance like this is why this, you know, and this, don't get me wrong. I don't anticipate in any way that these six are going to write it, by the way. It's going to be some staff member for them that writes this. But I'm having trouble because I also know some of the things that we're going to talk about later, which I also agree with, is how did they get to the point where they support this? And, and I don't understand. Well, I think the way that it was worded is it's, it's and this was talked about about a year ago. NPR did a, an article where they said that about a year ago, the American Hospital Association was trying to get Joe Biden, President Biden, to look into whether or not travel agencies were price gouging, you know. And so they're going at it from that angle. Like, is are the travel agencies, not the nurses, but the travel agencies, are they charging too much? You know, they're charging three, four, five times as much as they were pre-COVID numbers and then taking 40% of what they're charging for themselves. Well, they have to take something. You have to run a business. So, and and the thing is, if you decrease the amount of money that the agencies can charge, they're going to take it away from the nurses. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So uh, realistically, what it sounds like is they're trying to to deny a supply and demand system like the demand for the nurses is out there these agencies are running the supply and so now they're trying to you know say well we don't care we're trying to fix the one problem so that the other problem doesn't exist but that's not going to work that's not going to fix the actual issue yeah i don't think it's going to work either and i would not want uh this to happen either but i've never heard of a push to put wage caps on physicians And I don't think that there should be. I've always been a proponent of providers making whatever it is that they need to make because they sacrifice, you know, so much of their lives to get that medical degree and we need them. And so whatever they need to make, they need to make. And a lot of times they end up out of school in debt. And so I've never tried to step on their toes. So I don't understand these doctors not having our backs, but it's sad to me that you would have six doctors in this position that would not come to our defense, let alone sign something saying that they agree with it. Well, I would also just point out, you know, they still have MD behind their name, but that's not their primary job anymore. Their primary job is to be, you know, a lawmaker or say they're being a lawmaker. So they, they still have MD, but I think maybe it's a loss of touch. You know, they're like, well, I'm a doctor, so I understand. Well, you may be a doctor, but when was the last time you worked in a hospital treating patients? You know, when was the last time you took some? Because I think if they were involved with nurses uh, and respiratory therapists and x-ray techs and everybody else that's on the front line, I don't know that they would be in so much support of this type of bill. So my speculation is that this is one of those things where it, looks good on paper but when you actually go out into practice it's going to be an entirely different thing because reading the letter that they wrote i mean they're talking about that staffing agencies are taking 40 percent more of the amount being charged to the hospitals for themselves in profit so that's what they're that's one of the things that, like they're wanting to investigate which 
I understand, but like Tina said, if you're capping that off, the travel agency itself is going to just then take that from the nurses as opposed to dropping their profits. But I mean, 40% profit during COVID times is pretty exuberant. So I said, I, I think in the, I think I kind of get the reasoning behind it. Well, I know these travel, I look, I'm a travel nurse. Okay. I have never <laughs> tried to hide that fact. I've I was a nurse for six years and at a level one trauma center. And then I decided to travel for my own personal reasons. And I know there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes at these travel companies, or at least the one that I work for. They are working all the time. And also, I'm an employee of that company. They offer all kinds of benefits and they, they have large departments. So they employ a lot of people that aren't just the travel nurses. It costs money to run a company again. You know, this is a large company. Look who filed the American Hospital Association. Of course, they of course they want people to stop travel agencies from making so much money because it's costing them money. Like, you know, that's what I was trying to allude to earlier is they're trying to fix one thing and say, oh, that's what's going to solve it. That's not the problem. Okay. The problem is not the travel agencies. The problem is some of the other things that I think we're going to be talking about stuff like, well, and you brought it up and I'm not saying physicians don't deserve it, but it's a good point. If wages are the problem, shouldn't we be looking at the wages of everybody? CEOs, physicians, surgeons, shouldn't everybody be involved in this conversation? But Mm -hmm. weirdly enough, it's not. It's the nurses. So why is it just the nurses? So there are three things I'd like to bring up. First thing is H.R. 3165, the Safe Staffing Act. The second thing is the right to organize or the H.R. 842, which is like making it easier for nurses to organize. And then the third thing is H.R. Uh, HR 1195, I believe, the Workplace Violence Act. These are three things that nurses have been asking for long before travelers have been making exorbitant amounts of money. These are the things that have caused nurses to leave the bedside in droves. These are the things that nurses have been begging legislators. These are already written. They are on desks and they have not moved. Then this capping letter with all these signatures on it comes along and it slides right to the front of the table like it's been lubricated with the grease of these people's greasy ass palms. And one of the senators, I think it was Peter Welsh, was one of the senators that started gathering all these signatures. He's worth $5 million, according to the Internet. And he is supported. His campaigns have been supported largely by the AHA. So lobby money, hospital money has all been spent to not do anything to keep nurses in their jobs. So nurses left their jobs. They went to go travel so they can make a little bit of extra money because they've been suffering this whole time. And now they're like, oh, we don't want to pay the travelers anymore. They're making too much money. Well, you know what? We deserve that money. I'm not a traveler. Travelers deserve that money. And you know what? You cap traveler pay kiss all of those nurses goodbye because they've been making bank all pandemic they have been making their bag and they're going to take their money and they're going to retire and they're going to go do something they love to do and guess what you're going to have to pay more money to pay the doctors to go wipe the asses and hang the antibiotics and answer the call lights and i want to know how much those doctors want to make 
to go into the COVID rooms a hundred times a shift. I guarantee you the contracts are going to change. Yeah. And I love I, doctors. I want to know what you said is how many of these doctors that signed this are showing not. up to the hospital and looking they're, these nurses in the eye not. every this, day. This is what we've talked about on some of our episodes, you know, just on podcasts multiple times. Are people that don't know what you do are the ones that are trying to make laws about how you do yeah. it. Right. And how much we get paid to do it. So you know what? You can stop paying travel nurses all this money. Start paying bedside nurses what they're worth. Protect them. Make sure they don't leave with broken noses and ripped scrubs and exhaustion and tears. We've been begging for this for decades. And now they're like, oh, we got to pay you some money to go do a job nobody wants to do. We don't want to do it. Well, you know what? Don't take your $2 million bonus this year. Spread it around with the people that are actually doing all the work. Novel idea. And I'm sorry, I went on a rant. But the minute we started talking about this, my hands got sweaty, my heart rate went up, started chewing on my lip because this is what you're going to get. You're going to get nurses talking about this shit because, oh, sorry, I don't know if I can swear on this one. I'm not on Nursing Uncensored, but that's what I think about it. I'm waiting to hear what Ben or Tina has to say. So. Well, I totally agree. <laughs> I know. I, was yeah, like, I, I agree with everything that Adrian just said. I mean, the problem, everything goes back before COVID. This is not, COVID is basically just like, ripped the curtain back and exactly. let everybody see what's going that, on. That, that's what I was going to say is the problems were there. Mm-hmm. This just magnified it so that everybody yes. sees what's going now on. Now we're seeing, they've been running a bare bone skeleton crew in these hospitals for years before the pandemic hit. And now they're paying the price for it. And they're asking our government to step up and do something to fix it. When really all you have to do to fix it would be to mandate safe staff or initiate hospitals, initiate safe staffing ratios and stick to it. Don't admit any more, any more patients than you have nurses to take care of, to care for safely. And then how about double their pay, double the hourly rate that, that you're paying. And then you, won't have to pay the travel companies to pay them double because basically you're paying triple and quadruple in order for the nurses to make double what they were making at the bedside. I literally left my last job because the salary was garbage. We had no supplies. We had nothing. We were using travelers for everything. I moved to another state and doubled my pay. Like it should not be that way. So again, these are things that were all discussed prior to the pandemic they fell through the cracks. Yeah. CEOs and boards were like, well, we don't have to worry about it because the nurses will keep coming back for money. Well, they're coming back now, but they're coming back as travelers. And now they're like, oh, well, now I can't keep the system up. So instead of paying them what they were worth the first time, now they're paying through the roof to get them back. And instead of fixing the problem, they just want to make the problem go away. Well, they think that they can that they can pay the travel nurses on a short-term basis and then everything's going to go back to the way it was. They don't want to get stuck paying. They don't want to be like, okay, let's increase all nurses pay by double whatever you make. Whatever you make. It's like the Christmas vacation where the guy's like, whatever it was last, double it. You know, if they did that, then they would have to keep that going, you know, and it, and this way they can temper, they think temporarily pay travel nurses until they have some way of, fixing the problem and then hopefully as the pandemic fades so will people's interest and 
there they go. They got away with it. Yeah, that's exactly what they're hoping for. And they're back to paying nurses $22 an hour. Well, the other thing to consider, you know, when you're talking in the pandemic, if you cap travel nursing salaries, you're not going to have those nurses that are going to be willing to go to like New York whenever it was so bad there. Because why would I go to New York and make $25 an hour when I can stay here and make $25 an hour? Yeah, exactly. The problems are much bigger than what those, you know, six doctors are wanting to look at. That's, I think that's what it is. This is an easy way to fix a problem so that it can go away because the people that are giving the money, the American Hospital Association, that's what they want. So if it goes away. I just have a hard time in general with capping the uh, salaries of people who are doing physical labor. Like that, I have a hard time with in my head. Like I have a hard time with the idea of capping physical labor when like you could be capping the salaries of people who are making thousands of dollars an hour and not breaking a sweat. Like I don't doubt that there are jobs that are critically important that need to happen to run. But like I've also like, you know, taken patients around the hospital and seen the same like four executives sitting around a table in the lunchroom like every time I've walked by. So this problem like, has existed for quite a while. I can't tell you how many times they were like, well, a patient's coming up from surgery. I'm like to go where? Like I don't have anywhere to put them. They're like, well, make it work. Make it work. Yeah, yeah, like a surgeon was allowed to complete a procedure to make money for the hospital, and then it was up to the nurses to make it work, which we did. And unfortunately, we made it work so well for so long that they just got, yeah, they, they, they it just became, why yeah, do I need uh-huh. to make a four-to-one staffing ratio? You've made eight-to-one work. And honestly, I, I don't want to say we shot ourselves in the foot because we didn't. We did our jobs. But we did it so well that apparently CEOs and boards decided, hey, guess what I can do? I don't need a four to one. I can do an eight to one. And I've talked about that in other episodes before that I've done on my own show, wherein in some ways we've made the leadership look good when really it's just because the team knows how to hustle. And that's both a strength of ours and like a huge weakness that I don't think it's a weakness of ours. I think it's something that they've taken advantage of. And I think that now in order for us to kind of regain ground, we need to in some way stop doing that. And the way nurses have stopped doing that is by stopping being nurses because they can't stop doing it when they're at the bedside. Like there are not nurses that will say, no, I will not take care of this patient who really needs a nurse. We can't do that. We'll say, of of course, I'll make it work and I'll hate every minute of it, but I'll do it because the person needs it. But yeah, people don't want to make it work anymore. So instead of, you know, forcing them to reckon with it we're just we're leaving and it's it's disastrous probably not the best time to piss a bunch of nurses off uh, at the end of a yeah. two-year <laughs> pandemic they were so busy wearing doctor stethoscopes and playing cards that they didn't know what yeah. else to do and i don't know what other nurses are doing but like i know nurses that personally and this is all anecdotal of course i, I you know i can't represent studies and massive waves of change but even I know nurses that are like you know what I hated my bedside job I was terrified to quit I quit I'm a traveler now and I love what I'm doing and you know I make the choices but I also know nurses that are still in their bedside jobs and they hate it and I can see how much they've aged because I you know I video chat with friends from back home and I'm like 
I, I would never say this to them because I love them, but I'm like, God, you look like you're being abused and it's your job. There are a lot of people that are saying like, I'm just, I can't, some people can't do it anymore. And then there are some that are trapped because, you know, they have families to feed and, you know, they've been nurses so long that they feel like they can't. But I think there's a great many people that do feel like they can. And we're going to, you know, we've got that to talk about. Um, I remember when I first started nursing the first couple of years, um, wondering, where are all the nurses trying to change things? Where is everyone? And I remember thinking just to myself, just kind of thinking, is nursing like this because it is female dominated and a lot of nurses, you know, once they get, they work a few years, get married, start having children, go PRN, start working sort of part time. And so nursing is not necessarily first and foremost in their lives and in their mind and in trying to change it. It's more of a, I don't like this, I'll just leave kind of thing, as opposed to let's all band together and try to change it. And now that COVID has come along, it's sort of galvanized (laughs) everyone to, to be like, I'm going to dig my heels in and try to do something to change this. And that's where this sort of comes into play. We were mentioned earlier, the March that's going on January 29th, just about eight days ago from the time that we're recording this, three nurses organized a Facebook group that now has over 166,000 members. The group recently underwent a name change. It's now known as the United Nurses March. And on May 12th, 2022, nurses from all over, and not just nurses, anyone who wants to support nurses, by the way, are going to march in solidarity against capping travel nurse pay and for what they're calling, quote, fair and equal pay, and also protection from violence in the workplace and safe staffing ratios. I believe those are the three, the fair and equal pay, protection from violence in the workplace and safe staffing ratios are their three topics for their platform, I believe. And it is called United Nurses March. It's organized by Veronica Marshall, RN, Faith Bennett, RN, and Dr. Sandra Rizzoldi, DNP. She's a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. It will be at the Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. The walk starts at 10 a.m. Eastern. There will be speakers at the Capitol, and then it ends at 4 p.m. Eastern. So I just wanted to be sure and get all the details out from that. I'm going to go ahead and say, first and foremost, up front, that I don't There isn't a whole lot of information out there. This happened very quickly, just a little over a week ago. So I'm not that familiar with the organizers. I don't want to be like, hey, I'm all gung-ho and I'm all for it because I don't know that much. But at the same time, you have a huge group of nurses who are so passionate wanting to get together. And so I felt like it was worth mentioning. And I I didn't want to do anything. I don't know. I, I wanted to mention it, but I also want to say I don't know a whole lot about it, how well organized it is. Don't know. What do you guys think about this? So I think we need to be cautious, and I don't know a lot about it as well, so I'm going to speak with caution, but I've been around enough grassroots organizations and organizers to know that you need to do these things very methodically and carefully and with intent because you need to be aware of leaderships, 
your actions, what your plan is. This needs to be consistent. It needs to be repeated. And you need to have like goals. You can't just like, it's not like throwing a party, you know, and I don't, and I don't mean to say that these organizers mean to do this, but like, I don't necessarily discount social media, but I don't necessarily trust when grassroots organizations start in a Facebook group. Okay. I did see a post in which one of the organizers was saying like, I just thought this would be great to bring everybody together. That's a great intention. I love that. But I want to see organizations that have some kind of plan, okay? We want to get the attention of Congress, the White House. We want to have things that we're asking for, that we're demanding. You know, we want to have things organized, okay? We don't just want to show up and have some speakers. And we also want it to be inclusive. And I'm really glad they changed their name because originally this was called the Million Nurse March. And that is very disrespectful co-opting of the Million Man March, which occurred when I was a child. And a lot of young nurses probably don't even know what that is. It was actually an organized march for black men. And it was actually organized. I don't know a ton about it because I was a child when this was happening. But, you know, people now that are like, yeah, the Million Nurse March. It's like, well, you don't even know about the history of this necessarily. And people didn't even really like Louis Farrakhan at the time, you know, and people are not necessarily sympathetic to the things that he said in the media. So for a bunch of white, you know, nurses on Facebook to be like, yeah, Million Nurse March. Well, it was a black uh, woman that started it. And I think she probably got the idea like she's the one that came up with the idea million nurse sure and i'm not gonna speak for black people i am a white woman i cannot speak to that but i've heard the voices of other black nurses on social media saying that like this is for black men and i don't necessarily even want another black woman saying like let's take this name and use this so that felt a little weird to me but again i am not that's a voice exactly for the why they changed community. the name that, that was, was just something yeah which i am great i am gr- i'm glad they did that i just wanted to speak on that because i want other young white nurses to know that because I'm still seeing posts that other people saying like, I'm excited for the million nurse March. I just want other nurses to know that they're not calling it that. Right. And so I am speaking that to my peers, but also my biggest concern is, and I want to learn more and I want to encourage others to learn more. I want to see like people involved that have actual grassroots planning in their blood, like not just in their blood, but like they know what they're doing. I'd like to see, you know, I'd love to see like impact healthcare involved, but they do not yet have their, I don't know what the code is, but they do not have yet their nonprofit status to be able to take on like government entities. And I don't know a lot about nonprofit status, but there are certain nonprofits that have status to be able to take on government entities. Well, one of the, so Dr. Sandra Rizzoli, the nurse that I mentioned is one of the organizers of this event, is the founder and president of the Nurses Against Violence. And so she has a website, nursesagainstviolence.org. It is a 501c3 that's aimed at bringing awareness, educating and empowering and eliminating violence in healthcare. And she has been featured on The Doctors. I mean, she definitely 
has a lot, she lends a lot of credibility, a lot of legitimacy to this event. And so that was when I saw she was tied to this, it helped me kind of feel like, okay, she obviously knows what she's doing here. And I believe in what she's doing. So it definitely lends legitimacy to it. And so I think it's healthy to mention, you know, that it's it's so new, you know, it's in its infancy, this brand new thing that someone just happened to. She, I believe, was the one that said she was just on online and she just kind of got inspired and said, we should do this. And it just sort of snowballed. Well, and that's my, my two big concerns, at, at least again, I haven't really looked into it. So literally in the last five minutes, two things popped up. First, what Adrian said. You know, it sounds really great. A bunch of nurses want to get together. We want to march. Awesome. Who's spearheading this? What is our platform? What are we actually going to talk about? Because if this goes off, it could just be a fizzle instead of a bang. All right. What we want is focused effort to bring these changes about for nurses. Just because we all show up in Washington, D.C. does not mean that's the outcome. All right. So that's the first thing. And they did say, you know, they said violence against healthcare workers to, to address that nurse stay safe nurse to patient ratios and fair wages and stuff. fair wages or something. I don't but, I, I'm not a fan of the way that's worded. I wish they would just be like, bam, you know, you're not capping travel nurse pay, but whatever. They're saying well, we want these things. But what do they have in place? What there, there are cogs to this machine. All right. Every machine's got them. What are they like? Do they have people in place? Are they working with a lobbyist group? Like, what are they doing to actually make the change that they're talking about instead of it just being talk? They need to get some Congress people behind it. Well, that's and that's that was going to bring me to my second point is, unfortunately, no matter how you cut it, how things are looked at, at least from people that don't know a lot about healthcare, or probably from like a legislative standpoint, healthcare is tied to physicians. Okay, when they say, oh, we need to make a law. How did the doctors think about this? Okay, doctors right now are in league, it seems like, with the American Health Association or Hospital Association on this and like, hey, these nurses, you know, that's what's going on. We have got to get to a point where nurses are looked at as colleagues working with doctors in a healthcare setting versus a lot of people still look at it as we work under and, and I mean, and there there is certain ways to break that down where like when you're within the aspects of working like in there, the doctor does, you know, make the, the diagnoses and the treatment plan, the nurse, you know, carries it out. However, there is a large misconception about how that actually works. And so until nurses break through that mold and are able to say, no, no, no we understand we are we work different, but we are on par that's just not – and I think that's also part of the lack of power that nurses have. Like as a group and a momentum, I think we have lots. But actually forcing change and getting someone into a place where we are the now the point man on healthcare instead of the afterthought, I don't know that we've gotten to that point yet. And that's something that we have to work as. My thoughts, if this goes off without a hitch like they're asking for, this to me is, you know – Congress came for the travel nurses, and now this is every you know all the nurses standing up saying, "Hey, not only are we not going to let you do this, or we're not, we know we're going to fight you against this. Here's all the other stuff that's been going on that's been going on yeah. for years. Mm-hmm. That now that we have your attention, you're going to listen to us. Yeah, good. So I mean, I hope that it, 
that it goes well. I hope that you know Tom and I are a big proponent against workplace violence, and we talk about it frequently on our show. Stat and ratio is the same thing, but I mean, I, I just I hope that now that they have this focus on them, they were able to start formulating some of those changes that, like Adrian had said, we were they've been trying to do for years and has just been kind of pushed under the the rug where now we're going to shine a light onto it. What I hope they don't do is it worries me a little bit because the whole workplace violence thing is obviously I don't want to get hit at work, but when it comes down, if you, (laughs) I'd rather not, but if you think about it, there was a law in the state of Tennessee that was passed and to make it a felony for a healthcare worker to be, assaulted. And so that was great. And I appreciated them for doing that. It didn't really do a whole lot to help me because what it's going to do is it's going to punish. It will punish people. And so is it going to deter? Probably not. Because usually when they're doing that, they're complete, not always, sometimes they threaten and do stuff on purpose, you know, like with nothing, no chemical imbalances or no, you know, nothing going on. But a lot of times they are under the influence or even have something physiological wrong with them that's causing them to be confused. And so that's why a lot of the violence happens in hospitals. So I don't, and even with that, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people who would be assaulting healthcare workers that are going to be like, well, I was, I would hit you if it wasn't for that law. You know, I just don't think it's going to do a whole lot for us. And I don't want Congress to be able to cherry pick this one out. That's a kind of a softball. They could pass that pretty easily and then just be like, we're four nurses. Yay, we passed this and then move on. I would rather focus on safe staffing ratios myself. I get the violence in the work, workplace and I would be happy for it. And I want it to be there too. I want that respect. I want, you know, I, I like it. But if it were just me, I would be focusing on safe staffing ratios, period. Well, so when you, first of all, I'm glad they passed that. Second of all, everybody should be, if it's a felony to hit any healthcare worker, like you you are right. There, there should be increased punishments because there are times where that's going to help law enforcement and, making changes, but they're not going to be immediate. That's You're right. You getting punched in the face, if it becomes a felony, may help you down the road when people become like, oh, I don't want to be involved with felonies. But it's not going to help you not get punched in the face when you're getting punched in the face. What they can do is like some of the things that you guys have already talked about, self or uh, safe staffing ratios can really improve that. But the biggest things, and honestly, I don't think you're going to see a lot of traction or change until hospital administrations get involved. And we unlink compensation to patient satisfaction because that bred the grounds. And this is a much longer conversation we don't have to have tonight. But I believe based on my you know, workplace violence and, and being against it and looking into it, when you hospital administration starts saying, hey, patients, you could treat our staff however you want because we want you happy, that bred a, a larger contempt by the general public and seeded this behavior of I can treat a nurse as crappy as I want. And you know who's going to get in trouble? That nurse. And that's because hospital administrations have allowed this to happen. And I think some of the things that you guys talked about and and getting hospitals behind the staff instead of the patient is the only way you're really going to see a lot of overall change. But what do I know? 
I was just thinking I videoed a friend of mine and he looked all gray and blurry on the video feed and I just didn't know what to do. So <laughs> sorry. I've been thinking about that since Adrian said she FaceTimed her friends. Sorry. I couldn't stop thinking about it, Ben. Just staring me in the face. You're third from the right on my screen and you look oh, you look like the scene right before Jigsaw kills somebody and saw. <laughs> like I mean just like, oh my oh. god, it's terrible. But uh, yeah, no, I think I've, I, I think start, I've I lost enough. it and started laughing when Adrian cited the internet uh, when she was talking <laughs> yes, how much. Yeah. <laughs> I like, looked it up on just the look internet. Let's look at it and her references, the internet. <laughs> the internet. I could not stop laughing. I don't know why. Like I was crying. It was so funny. Sounds like something I would do. I was so upset. I was like, it, it was on the look, It, it was, was somewhere on the, on the Google. Internet. I Googled it. Hey, I Googled it. I, I refer to it as Google. <laughs> I looked it up on I looked it up on the Google. And people always Oh, what's that? Is that a database? Yes, it is. Yes, yes it is. And it's medical. <laughs> Obviously. And it's evidence based. Yes, completely. Peer reviewed. <laughs> but no, I, I think I've spoken enough, so no, I'm I'm good. I've burned off all my endorphins, so I just want to thank you for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, this was great. Thank you. Adrienne, remind everybody where they can find you and your wonderful podcast. You can find me in the entire nursing universe, nursing uncensored universe at nursinguncensored.com. And I'm not going to ask Tom, Ben, where can we, <laughs> where can they find We'll Continue to Monitor? Well, they can find it over on justsomepodcast.com because it's part of our Just Some Podcast family of podcasts over there. All right. Sounds good. And you guys know you can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com. Why not? And <laughs> we're Just all on social it. media. Tom and Ben are Just Some Podcast. You guys have a will continue to monitor on social media too, right? Yeah, we have that. But if you, yeah. Yeah, TikTok. Oh, that's weird. Hey, kids, we're hip. <laughs> We're cool. So <laughs> I have the chick and the yeah. Oh, you kids. Well, thank you guys for being here and thank you guys for listening. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or bad boy, be a good nurse. Mm-hmm.